Welcome to Sportsman of Colorado, Colorado's premier outdoor radio show heard every Saturday afternoon on KLZ 560 with insights on hunting, fishing, archery, guns, and ammo from Colorado's top outfitters featuring the industry's leading experts on how to enhance your experience in the great outdoors. Now, here's your host, Scott Watley. Welcome to Sportsman of Colorado. This is Kevin Flesh. Scott is on assignment today, and I get the reins. So it's going to be fishing most of the time today because we haven't had a really good fishing show on for a while. I have a guest with me, Austin Parr of Discount Fishing Tackle. How are you, Mr. Parr? Doing excellent. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Yeah, this is such a fun time of year, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. You know, we have all these hunting opportunities, but can't forget about how good of fishing we're going to be dealing with over the next couple of weeks. You know, I say we're going to talk about fishing the whole time, and then I was hunting this morning. I was. Yes. Out, I don't know if it was necessarily hunting. It was. We were out at Rocky Mountain Roosters getting ready for the season, and the first time took the dog and the kids out. And uh, if the rest of eastern Colorado is like Rocky Mountain Roosters right now relating to the cover, it is going to be a really good tough year to find birds yeah and i mean starting off with some hunting right here going out and dove hunting on some of those eastern colorado properties um not only do we see a few pheasants at least um but a lot of good cover and, and interestingly enough saw some small broods out there small chicks still for this time of yeah. year so hopefully the the late broods were able to, to hold on i was surprised there were so many doves flying around this morning we still got a few doves it's because it's been so warm yeah and and it's still that kind of funny time of year when you have doves around still <laughs> and, and this is always a time of year where i kind of shift back from hunting and and into fishing again right. uh, in between duck season and and big game seasons and and the doves it's such a fun time of year and we're just coming we're just this is the last show for september and october is really that's when the fun really gets started yes. i mean we're it was fun this morning and and we'll talk about some transition issues in the metro area and and the upper uh, you know in the in the mountains and things like that today but uh it's just sort of the precursor to the really fun stuff oh yeah yeah, we've started to see some little bit of cold temperatures, and, and we've started to see some of those transitions happening in some of these metro bodies of water as well. And we'll talk all about uh, the mountains, but we'll start off with the metro area right now. Uh, and, and Cherry Creek especially is, is kind of the one that is the transition this time of year. Yeah. So we're starting to see some some shad die off a little bit right now, but that lake had a lot of shad, whereas Cherry Creek, excuse me, as, as Chatfield did not have the shad this time of year. Yeah. So with uh, Cherry Creek, what tell us a little bit about the die-off because I've, you know, my experience with um, Cherry Creek is the fishing is always really good in the spring. Oh yeah, and and once you kind of dial in what exactly the fish are doing, um, it becomes increasingly more difficult to catch fish after July fourth. Yeah, and. But, now we're into a different period. Absolutely. And, and Cherry Creek is one of those bodies of water in the state that is about as consistent on a year-to-year -year basis as anywhere. So in the early springtime, all those walleyes are on structure and they're they're feeding heavily on things like crawfish and baby crappies. But the shad are a shallow during that same time of year, but they're spawning. And yep. this time of year, all their little babies have had a chance for the last several months to come out over the open water. And when that happens, those fish peel off of the structure and they start chasing those bait fish. And we haven't had a lot of really cold temperatures yet but some of the fish are starting to relate to, to structure again so changing your tactics from pulling a lindy rig or a crawler harness or fishing live bait to throwing more of your jigging wraps and your blade baits on some of those shallow structure points is good and and you're looking for areas that those fish are trying to push the bait fish up against so the tower hump can be great some of the ridge lines on the western side and some of the big points on the southern side all will fish well and then as we move into the fall a little bit more, and especially once we get that first hard freeze, right. a lot of those fish will get out of that shallow water and go into the mid-range depth, so that 13, 14, 15-foot range, rather than the 4 to 5. So let's talk a little bit about 
the other the type of bite that you're talking about with the um, with the blade baits and those sorts of things. Describe how exactly you'd recommend somebody fish those baits on Cherry Creek. So if anyone's a fly fisherman out there, it kind of is the same thought process as fishing when there's a huge hatch that goes off, whether it be caddis or mayflies or whatever you're going to have. There's so much food in that lake right now that the fish are struggling to pick apart one single lure. So fishing something that is fast and aggressive and maybe brighter in color than you would be thinking about in the in the early springtime is, is what you're going to want to do. You don't want to be trying to feed these fish so much as actually trying to get them to react to something and the blade baits have that good vibration to them it's if anyone's ever fished a rattle trap that's sim similar to what a blade bait is but you're casting them out and you're yo-yoing them back so i'm pulling my rod tip up and reeling down a bit of slack pulling it up and reeling down a little bit of slack and then as you shift over to what call what's called the jigging wrap the jigging wraps were originally designed as an ice fishing lure yep. but they dart heavily and they fish very well on a cast and those you're doing the same type of presentation but you're fishing it much more aggressively so a very aggressive fast-paced pull with a little bit more of a reel and if you're dealing with fish that are a little more negative the blade bait will work better and the fish that are very reactive and, and looking to eat will eat that jigging wrap a lot more and i use them hand in hand in the fall so let's talk a little bit about boat position and where exactly you should be throwing to these fish. Is this you're in shallow water and throwing out in deep or in deeper water throwing into shallow? What? So it's all kind of dependent upon the, the specific conditions. But on a morning like this, I drove over the dam face and it was blowing really hard. And it was actually blowing up uh, you know, into the dam up to the north. So the fish, I'm always fishing to the side that the wind is blowing onto. So I'm looking for those shallow areas this time of year where those bait fish are going to get forced up onto those ridge lines. And if I'm fishing a shallow area, I will almost always try and position my boat shallow and then cast off the break and work back with exception to if the fish are in two or three feet of water. Yeah. If they're up that shallow, you have to position deeper and cast shallower. But sure. the whole reason being, if I'm casting out and bringing it back, my bait is always retaining bottom contact. If I'm out deeper and casting shallower, it's very easy to pull that bait off of your break and then have it pendulum into the deep water without getting the, the presentation correct. And without having your sonar and you know the actual unit in front of you, describe... If folks are out on Cherry Creek, what it looks like where you're going to find these fish. I mean, is, are they going to be suspended? Are they going to be on the bottom? Or what do you normally see? There will be a huge percentage of suspended fish out there right now. But those fish, unless you're actively trolling to them, it, I always kind of joke about it that it's the best way to get skunked is to fish to those suspended fish this time of year. So I'm looking for shallower structure. But unlike in the summertime, I'm not necessarily looking for areas that are super piled up with fish. I'm almost fishing areas more that are going to have fish moving through them, which is different than what you would think about in the in the early part of the summer. But I'm looking for that deep water with a, a pretty steep transition coming up on my screen up into the shallower area. And okay. I mean, I'm fishing as shallow as four feet of water right now, but this time of year, four to eight feet is key. Early morning especially, they'll be up shallow like that. But however, we did have some, some fish that were very active midday the other day on a good wind storm um, that pushed some fish up shallow. But as you move into that later October standpoint, when it starts getting cold, that's when I'll change from that shallow water into a little bit deeper and still the same idea, but fishing in 16, 17 feet versus four, five, six, eight, ten 10 feet. And are you using side imaging and that sort of thing to find find fish this time of year? I usually don't. And, you know, I'm, I'm more using my GPS than anything right now. So trying to locate and find those breaks and stay on them is the key. And if you're a shore angler, a place like the dam face at Cherry Creek is very good for that same aspect because you have a good steep drop off yep. and 
unlike the dam at Chatfield that's very snaggy, the rocks end almost right at the waterline at Cherry Creek. So yeah. a shore angler can work that whole dam face with these same jigging wraps and blade baits without dealing with the snags that you would at Chatfield. You know, the whole east side, there's some really good shoreline for, Absolutely. for people to use. And yeah. steep drop-offs right. over there, too. That whole eastern side where the tower is, you have good steep drops that yeah. those fish will push up against shallow, and you can absolutely catch fish on jigging wraps and blades. But I will say that if you can fish with a braided line and get a little bit longer cast yep. out there using a fluorocarbon leader, that's key, but then also talking about equipment for really quick, uh, a little bit stiffer rod is key for both of these. You don't want to be fishing with your medium lights or your ultralights on this. You want to try and get into a good stout medium and an extra fast action. Let's talk that about that a little bit because I think not only the rod but the but the line. Let, but let's first talk about the rod. Now, heavier rod and longer. A little you, bit longer, yeah. yeah so, so six and a half, seven. Exactly. So my favorite size is actually a six foot eight inch medium power and an extra fast rod. So the power is what a lot of people would think about as action. However, it's not what that is. So that's how stiff the rod is. But then your action is going to be where the rod is bending. So an extra fast action rod bends much more toward the tip than it does in the middle of the rod, which gives you a very crisp action on these blades and these jigging wraps and allows you to drive a hook set at long range. And then you pair it up with that braided line. Braided line doesn't stretch. It doesn't coil. It casts a really long ways, so you can catch fish and hook fish at the very longest cast that you can possibly throw. And talking about long casts, I mean, you're you're talking, especially with these blade baits, because they're so heavy, you mm -hmm. can cast them a mile. Oh, yeah, and you position yourself along a structure point, you can cast all the way along that structure point and work back. Whereas in the early part of the springtime, what we were talking about earlier, when those fish are really on fire, right. they'll be on one very specific spot. Whereas right now they're chasing these bait fish along these ridge lines. So if you can cover a lot of water, that can be very effective. That's the key. So you, you cast it out, you let the lure go all the way to the bottom. Absolutely. You, you um, reel in basically the rod tip down to the bottom, uh, down to the water line, right? You Making bring it up. sure you're down, yep. yep. Make sure you're down. When I'm actually using these techniques, however, the rod tip has to be up the entire time. That's and what I was going to cover, yeah. Exactly. So if you're dropping that rod tip and coming down from a 9 o'clock to a 12 o'clock position, yep. I watch clients all the time that struggle with this. And if your technique is not perfect, right. it's not going to work. Because these fish are looking for something very specific. And if you don't present that specific te technique to them, it's, it's critical. And whether you're fishing Chatfield or Cherry Creek or Aurora, the slack line pull always seems to be it. So what, what that means is when I'm actually ripping this, I'm never reeling all the way down to that lure. Right. So describe that. So, what, what does that look like when you're in the boat or what, what should it feel like when you're, when you're actually doing it? Sure. So I'm making sure I'm on bottom first. And typically, whether I'm on a blade bait or on a jigging wrap, I'm trying to keep my rod between a 10 o'clock and 1130 position. So I'm starting in 10 and I'm moving up to 1130 with a sharper pull on the jigging wrap than you would on the blade. But as I'm working it, I, every single time I'm, I'm popping it and only reeling maybe a half of a crank. So the next time, the first half of my pull does not have anything except for slack and and then i'm immediately dropping my rod tip right back down again to allow that bait to fall if you snap and hold that rod that does not allow that blade bait or that jigging wrap to to have the appropriate glide side to side and it just doesn't work and i'm not sure exactly why it doesn't work but i watch clients do it one guy will do it right and one guy won't and you have to you one guy will be hammering them and the other one won't and and i think the idea with that is that in that slack, that bait is able to move like a dying fish. Exactly. If it doesn't have that slack, then it looks like a piece of metal that's just sort of falling in the water. Exactly. Is my impression, too. And I and I see it all the time, and even when I get sloppy sometimes, I notice that I, I'm just not catching fish like you would be. Mm -hmm. And the idea is, is that you've got, you don't, 
you don't run that that tip of that rod that long of a space. I mean, it's not short. Yeah, it's maybe a couple feet. Yeah, and that's where that braid comes in too, because you can impart that crisp action immediately, and you don't have to feel like you have to have these huge long poles like you would with mono on a long cast. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so that's what's going on with Cherry Creek right now. Sort of the uh, transition to that sort of setup and what people should be doing now into October. It's going to be all the way through the end of November. Okay. So, and depending upon how the the cold snap comes, the immediate aftermath of the cold snap is typically the best and last year it wound up being the first two weeks of october and november wasn't quite as good however the bite was still decent yeah so the next couple of weeks if you can get away from the hunting it's time for not only decent numbers of fish but you have op opportunities at really big ones out there as well we had a period of time last year with some really nice fish yeah and there are some really nice fish in that oh fishery. my goodness yes all right. Well, let's take a break for now. Uh, when we come back, let's talk about some of the other uh, opportunities in the metro area and maybe in the front range for fishing, uh, and then we'll move on to the mountains. That'll sound, that sounds perfect. Awesome. We'll be right back. Hunting Gear Outfitters, a specialty gear showroom for all your hunting gear needs. Hi, I'm Ted Ramirez. So if you're headed on a self-guided or guided hunt for deer, moose, or anywhere in the world, stop by Hunting Gear Outfitters, home of Caribou Gear Outdoor Equipment Company. We are located at 8955 South Ridgeline Boulevard in Highlands Ranch. Questions, tips, and tactics are free, so call 303-798-5824 or visit us at huntinggearoutfitters.com. You finally got the motorcycle that you have always dreamed of. You love that feeling of the wind on your body and the tires on the road and that feeling of freedom. But then when you were out on a ride, somebody didn't look twice and merged into you. You went down and now you're hurt. Your insurance is not moving as fast as you thought they would. You missed work. And what's worse is your bike is totaled. It's time to call Flesh and Beck. After you've been in a motorcycle accident, call Kevin Flesh at Flesh and Beck Law. He will answer all of your questions. Kevin Flesh will help you to determine if you are entitled to compensation for your pain and suffering. And he has the experience and the knowledge to navigate the complicated maze created by the insurance companies designed to minimize your claim. Call Kevin Flesh of Flesh and Beck Law at 303 806 8886 to find out how he can help you get the compensation that you deserve. That's Kevin Flesh of Flesh and Beck Law. 303-806-8886. Call now and get back on the road. Rush to Reason with John Rush. Weekdays from 3 to 7 on KLZ 560. back to Sportsman of Colorado. This is Kevin Flesh. I am uh, joined by Austin Parr from Discount Fishing Tackle. And uh, we were talking about uh, Cherry Creek earlier, but we're moving on now to Chatfield and maybe some of the other opportunities in the metro area. And, uh, you know, Chatfield's, it's been fishing differently than Cherry Creek the last few years. And let's talk about sort of historically what's been going on there and, and what you're seeing with with your guiding and the other things in, with regard to the lake right now. Yeah, so, I mean, Chatfield, all the, the, the differences kind of started during the floods in 2015. So uh, we lost a lot of walleyes out of that lake. Some estimates even are talking about 30 to 40% of really? the walleyes out of that lake. So we lost a lot of walleyes. The immediate year after, there was a lot of shad in that lake that had spawned when the water was so high. But 
the the Army Corps of Engineers opened the dam right as all those fish came out of the open water. So we lost a lot of shad during that point. So we had a combination of not very many walleyes and not very many shad. And the state has done a fantastic job getting walleye fry back in there, and the population is really back up. But the shad have kind of been on a boom or bust cycle for the last couple of years. Yeah. Last year it was really good. This year, when all the shad were up shallow and spawning, there was a fairly good cold snap that happened, and it seems to have really hurt the shad spawn. So we don't have near the quantity of small bait fish that you would at a place like Cherry Creek. So it's changing everything right now. So the fishing is still very good, um, but the fish are not necessarily chasing bait fish at all because they're not there. They're still sitting on their summertime type patterns. However, a lot of the fish have shifted to the south. So places like the roadbed and the bridge and some of the areas out in the north of the marina are not nearly as productive right now, but you shift south onto those gravel pit edges. Yeah. And they're sitting in seven, eight, ten feet of water back there, but they're very tightly positioned. So unlike what we were talking about a minute ago at Cherry Creek, where you're trying to cover a lot of water, a lot of my casts are much shorter right now. So things like jigs and crawlers are working really well right now, ironically, which is not something I would <laughs> recommend throwing this time of year in any other body of water right now than Chadfield. Right. But jigging wraps are starting to produce and blade baits as well. However, not so much in the shad colors, much more in the perch-oriented colors. Oh. So, and that's what I was gonna ask you about is color and then also presentation sort of of the jigging with the uh, night crawlers yeah what what sort of is it a, an aggressive sort of bite or is it very a, soft very soft okay and a lot of these fish are eating crawfish they're spitting up crawfish so i'm going more of my crawfish type colors so i'm using stand-up jig heads like some from northland or a fintech knuckleball jig yeah. in an orange and black color splitting the crawler in half and threading it up on like you would a curly tail grub locating my fish and, and positioning myself where I can cast right to them. And I'm only moving my rod tip maybe two inches at a time. Oh, my goodness. But I'm okay. giving it a little pull, pull, pull kind of pattern and then reeling down a bit of slack. And the fish are not picking it up and thumping it like they would in the summertime at all. All of a sudden, you just lift up, and it is just a little bit of dead weight, yep. and you give them a bit of slack and then set the hook. Okay. And it's a slow pattern, but they are eating the jigging wrap still some as well. However... I'm pausing the jigging wraps much more ironically out there rather than Cherry Creek. So I'm snapping it, giving it a pronounced pause, and then snapping it again. So that, that has seemed to work. But the other thing at Chatfield that really is a good offering are the smallmouth bass. So if you shift to the north, the dam face is full of them right now, and they're on the cross heavy. So fishing a Ned rig or fishing a tube is a great way to catch a lot of fish right now. That's that's good to know, too, because the, they're... The smallmouths on Chatfield can be really spectacular. Oh my goodness, yes, they can, they, they they bite like crazy, and they yeah. still are. So let's talk a little bit about fish location of, on the south side. Are you going through with your electronics, locating schools of fish, then backing off, and then just sitting on those fish for a period of time to try to catch them, or are you sort of floating through? just that area and hoping that you're running into fish as you float through. So I'm definitely fishing some of the edges of those gravel pits very specifically. Now, before I go on, I want to make mention that the water's down right now, about six or seven feet. So there's some areas back there that you'll go from 30 to two. So you have to watch out with your boat. Definitely be paying attention to your sonar. Yep. But I'm getting on the edges of those breaks, and I'm using my spot anchor. But if someone needed to, to use a regular anchor, you absolutely sure. could. But I'm, I'm positioning myself where I'm finding it, marking it on my GPS, and then I'm actually utilizing a compass back in there to really get my bearing perfect on my cast because you're not, if you're off a degree, those fish are right. sitting so tight that you can really not catch the fish um, without really being dead on them. But I'm fishing to a spot and typically catching a number of fish within the first five or 10 minutes. And then the bite kind of dies. So I'm not really staying on those fish and I'm backing off and going to another spot. And the nice thing about those gravel pits down there is you almost have unlimited edges to fish. And they're not on every edge. 
huge, but there's a lot of fish that are scattered throughout that no wake zone, and I'm moving around an absolute ton, and I'm not sitting there trying to force fish that aren't biting. And the other thing I want to mention is there are a ton of white suckers in Chatfield, oh. and they like to sit on those same spots <laughs> that those walleyes do back there, and they look a little different on the sonar, but they can trick you back there because you can be fishing to an area, and all of a sudden you, you stick a sucker on a jig and a crawler, and you don't catch any walleyes. So yep. you can be sitting there fishing to suckers all day without knowing it. You mentioned something earlier when you were talking about them opening up the dam and letting fish out from the uh, reservoir. Yeah. So do you think the Platte River still has walleyes in it from 2015? There are some, but not near the numbers that they had in 2015. Yeah. So there was uh, a literal slaughter that was going on of walleyes underneath the dam at Chatfield with how many there were. But walleyes, they, although they can live in, certainly in rivers, and they do all across the Midwest, they're sure. pretty sensitive to really low flows. So yeah. in the middle of the summertime, there's just not quite the flow necessary to support a really strong population of walleyes, nor the bait fish population. Sure. Um, so there may be some, but as far as a targetable number, maybe wouldn't Probably. waste my time too much yeah. on that. Certainly would have been good in 2016. Oh, my goodness, yes. There was a lot of fish in there, and there was there was talk of 100 fish days under the dam at Chatfield. You know, the other thing that you're talking about is fishing to the conditions. So right now, Chatfield is down six or seven feet. Um, I remember back in 2015 when you were fishing, like, in the, in the actual campground oh, yeah. at, in, at Chatfield. So yeah. And then next year, we're going to be, that lake's going to raise 12. So we're going to come back five and yep. then we're going to bump an extra 12 and so all these same spots that you're used to fishing out there are not going to be good next year you're going to have to find all new stuff and i will too and i don't think anyone really knows exactly where they're going to be sitting but um it's going to be different the roadbed and the bridge are not going to be the the go-to <laughs> anymore so let's talk a little bit about that and if somebody is new to the area and wants to go over to chatfield um what do you recommend i know that you're talking about the south end but but let's say someone just wants to navigate around uh, around the lake, and how do you do that when you when you get to a new lake, and what are the things that you're looking for? So at first, if you can locate a good map, that's always the number one thing to do. And a lot of these lakes have good maps through Lawrence Electronics, but you can also get decent paper maps from mm -hmm. the Fish and Map Company that they've done throughout Colorado. Depending upon the time of year, however, walleyes are very structure-oriented fish. So I'm looking for a, a rise, I'm looking for a point, I'm looking for a hump, something like that. And that's always the first places that I'm going to check. But some of these Eastern Plains lakes don't have a lot of those. So instead of fishing to these dramatic drops that you have at Chadfield due to the fact that it was an old gravel pit out yeah. there, I might be fishing to a drop-off that might only be one or, or two feet deep. And and real quick, ironically, there was uh, I was fished with Chad Lachance the other day, and he was actually fishing up in the in the north country with Steve Panas filming a, a TV show. And Steve said, okay, we're going to go fish the first drop on the edge of this this natural lake. And Chad went over it, and the drop was like two feet. Really? And he's like, well, what are, you, what are you talking about? And he said, that is the drop. And that's the same thing that we're seeing in some of these Eastern Plains lakes, is that these fish will relate to tiny little structure or changes or bottom contour changes. I'll always look for that somewhere that you'll have rock to mud or a weed line. All will attract those fish. But yeah. if you're in the late summertime and these fish have a lot of shad, which all these Eastern Plains lakes have, using a trolling application and pulling planer boards can be very effective as well. Well, that's a great transition. So we've talked about Cherry Creek and Chatfield. Let's move a little bit out into the Eastern Plains and some of the lakes that are out there and describe what the fisheries are out there and sort yeah. of what's going on right now for, for catching walleyes and other fish. Sure. So unlike a typical year, we've seen a lot more water in those Eastern Plains lakes, and therefore the levels have been much higher than you would see on, yeah. on any other given year. But lakes like Sterling or Jumbo or Jackson or Pruitt or Barr all have huge populations of walleyes that rival many of the Front Range lakes. And the populations will fluctuate due to low water levels, but we're at a boom cycle right now. Yeah. So there's walleyes and crappies in all of those lakes with bass mixed in as well. 
but lakes like Sterling and Jumbo are holding good water that you can still have boats on even this late in, this, in the time of year. But there are big populations of shad in all of those lakes. So you have to think more Cherry Creek than you do Chatfield. So typically what I'll do if I'm not used to a lake like that is I'll start by trolling planer boards. This time of year, there's still a lot of bait fish out there. The water temperatures are still fairly warm. And I'll troll across the main basins, and I'll put things like a Salmo Hornet or a Flicker Shad behind my planer boards and adjust my length back so I can get my depth dialed in. And I actually will even take notes as I'm trolling so I can really get something dialed in. But as we move into the, the colder weather patterns, I'll find things like a transition line or a point or a drop-off or a hump, which those lakes all have out there, and fish my jigging wraps and fish my blade baits and try and cover a lot of water with those jigging wraps and change my colors often, change my presentation often, where sometimes I'll snap harder, sometimes I'll add more, more pause to it. But there's great fishing to be had in those lakes, as with the northern front range lakes. So talking about uh, especially Boyd. There's a huge walleye population out yeah. there, and there's not as good of a walleye population in Horsetooth, but there's great smallmouth up there, but bait fish in all of those lakes. So you have to think presenting your lures in a way to re get these fish to react. So a jigging wrap, a jigging spoon, or a blade bait all are what you need to be trying. And same sort of setup that we were talking about with Cherry Creek, that the same long casts looking for, looking for fish over a wide area. Absolutely. Um, and the same sort of technique trying to locate yourself on a piece of structure that's going to have fish coming through and making those big, long, drawn-out casts to, to fish these fish. I mean, there's going to be a tournament this next weekend up on Boyd, and I bet you it's going to be one on a jigging wrap. I mean, that lake is a jigging wrap lake. And the other cool part about the jigging wraps is they're a great multi-species lure. So you can catch, like, white bass up there. Right. You can Bunch catch smallmouth. Yeah, I mean, and, and wipers out east, too. You'll catch all these fish on, on all those different uh, different baits. Let's talk a little bit about the time of day. Let's say, you know, you're not an early riser, um, but... But let's let's speak about sort of the depth range of these fish as they because they do move a little bit more yes. uh, d this time of year depending upon the temperature. So early morning, a lot of times I'll start off really shallow, and if I if the wind was blowing all night, I'm always fishing against that wind-blown shoreline. So I'm trying to find that structure that that wind is blowing up against. But as the water temperature is still high right now. We're still in the mid-60s. Those fish, as the midday comes, will pull off of that structure, and they'll actually be feeding on those bait fish up high in the water column. So rather than casting something. I'll be trolling like we talked about with those oh, planter yeah. boards. And then if that wind kicks back up towards the end of the day, that is when I'll go right back to those structure points. So those fish will get pushed up against those structure, the fish being the shad, and then the walleyes chase them. And all your, all your predator fish do. And that's when I'll go back to casting again. But if that wind doesn't kick up, sometimes you can really struggle on that later afternoon bite until you get that first freeze, which then that bite sometimes is better in the middle of the day than it is in the morning. Great. So... That covers sort of the all of the outlying lakes that we're dealing with in the front range. Um, I think we're going to take a break now. Um, you're listening to Sportsman of Colorado. When we get back, we're going to talk with Travis Duncan from Colorado Parks and Wildlife about chronic wasting disease. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. This is Scott Watley for my friends at Phoenix Weaponry. Phoenix Weaponry is proud to announce their new 10,000 square foot facility is now open in Berthard, Colorado, located at 504 North 2nd Street. With this expansion, Phoenix Weaponry offers a new retail area and expanded gunsmithing in Duracote and Cerakote areas. Family owned and operated, Phoenix Weaponry offers the finest in competition, hunting, and long range precision firearms. Also suppressors, from 22 long rifle to 50 caliber for rifles, pistols, and shotguns. 
Phoenix Weaponry also offers gunsmithing services and restoration repairs from antique to modern firearms. Building your firearm dreams into reality. That's Phoenix Weaponry. Call them now, 720-340-2496, or visit them at phoenixweaponry.com. Ladies, I know you're tired of walking into the local gun store and seeing the same old thing. So let me tell you about Rampart Firearms. Just a quarter mile up Highway 67 off of Santa Fe and Sedalia, you will find a great selection of guns, ammo, tactical, and personal defense weapons. And if you or your spouse love to hunt, Rampart Firearms is a great stop for all of your hunting needs. Shotguns, rifles, pistols, anything from predator hunting to your next big game trip. Head to Rampart Firearms at the foot of the Rockies. Open six days a week, Monday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. And you will only pay a 4% tax on your purchase. RampartFirearms.com, 720-468-0050. That's 720-468-0050. Stack Optical has been providing the most comprehensive quality eye and vision care for over 50 years. Stack Optical is a family-owned business, and they're proud to be one of the few optical offices that have their own on-site eyeglass production and eyeglass repair studio. Your one-stop shop for all of your vision needs, eye exams, glasses, and contacts. And don't forget about the Stack Sports Pack. Let owner and certified optician Alan Stack customize a pair of specialized glasses that will make your next outing on the golf course or on the gun range better than ever before. Call today for your $69 eye exam, 303-321-1578. That's 303-321-1578. Or check them out at stackoptical.com. Rush to Reason with John Rush. Weekdays from 3 to 7 on KLZ 560. Welcome back to Sportsman of Colorado. My name is Kevin Flesh here with Austin Parr. We have uh, Travis Duncan on the phone from Colorado Parks and Wildlife. How you doing, Travis? I'm doing well. How are you doing today? Good. So what is going on with you and chronic wasting disease? Well, um, yeah, I, I guess I'm not sure where to start at. For those who don't know what, what chronic wasting disease I think we, yeah, is. Yeah, I think we uh, start from the beginning and give us a little background and then also what's <laughs> what CPW is doing to, to try to make sure that we don't have this problem in the state. Definitely. So it, it's a prion disease that affects uh, Colorado's deer, elk, and moose. Uh, the disease, of course, generally lasts two to three years, and it's always fatal. Um, and it was first discovered in Colorado in the 1960s. So, uh, you know, it's been um, identified all, all around the United States and different states, even all around the world, but first identified anywhere in the world. Um, outside of the Fort Collins area in the 1960s. Um, for years, we didn't really know the, I suppose, the scope of the problem or, or exactly what we were dealing with. Um, with regard to chronic wasting disease, we're learning more all the time about it. Um, but one thing we've learned is that, is that the prions uh, that are responsible for the disease can, can stay in the soil uh, for up to 50 years or longer. Um, it's not evident. Um, there's no way to test um, you, uh, whether an animal has chronic wasting disease or not without without it being dead and you be able to harvest the lymph node. So uh, you can't look at an animal and necessarily know uh, that, that it has chronic wasting disease. Um, in the later stages of the disease, it, it, you know, the, the deer will be disoriented, be stumbling around, and, and um, could be emaciated, obviously, shows signs of sickness. But 
Um, it's not always necessarily the case. You know, um, it, the, the disease can last two to three years, and so you could be looking at an animal that looks very healthy uh, that could have the disease, and so that makes managing it difficult. Um, and so last year, um, Parks and Wildlife, uh, along with a lot of stakeholders from around Colorado, um, met uh, five to six times uh, going over um, the history of, of what we know about chronic wasting disease uh, and um, what what best practices are kind of emerging uh, to to manage the disease, to manage the prevalence or infection rate of of herds of animals in the herds, and so um, this is the first year that we're really expanding um, our our mandatory testing, uh, so we can get a good sense of what the prevalence rates are around the state, and kind of starting to follow some of the guidelines set forth in that um, Colorado Chronic Wasting Disease Response Plan, and so. Um, Looking to spread the word to, to hunters, especially rifle rifle season uh, buck and doe hunters, um, they're they're probably going to be getting a, a letter in the mail. Especially if you're in the eastern plains, if you're hunting in the eastern plains this year, we've got 78 GMUs or game management units around the state, but they're mostly eastern plains units um, where we're going to be asking hunters if they harvest to to bring in their their animal head and have the have the lymph nodes uh, taken out and tested for chronic wasting disease. Uh, and so that's that's a real big expansion we're we're starting this year to try to get a a sense of just what the infection rate is around the state. Um, this is a plan that's um, it's a 15 year monitoring plan where every five years we'll have we'll have monitored the entire state. And so this is year one of that process. Um, but in five years from now, we'll be able to to tell you with with at least some degree of confidence what the infection rate is for for the state as a whole uh, and our deer populations and. Uh, how our management efforts are starting to affect um, those prevalence rates. So, Travis, can you tell us a little bit about why it's so important for hunters to bring in this, you know, the, the deer that they've shot so that you can get the lymph nodes from them um, and how that really helps you? You know, see, the public may say, oh, it seems like a lot of work to do that. Why is it really important for you to do that to keep the resource healthy? Right. I mean, there's a couple really good reasons to do it and why it's important. Um, one is that we, we really need the data to know what the infection rates are for our various herds so we know what kinds of actions uh, to be taking to bring those infection rates down. Uh, the, the problem we don't want to have is, is if herds get an infection rate that's too high, uh, then there can be fairly large, massive population declines to where lots of deer are dying off, lots are becoming infected and, and dying, and you're not you're not seeing those healthy herds that we want to see out there, whether you're wildlife watching, whether you're hunting. We won't have the data to know what actions we need to take, which herds you know, are, are struggling the most and, and how to handle that. So that's one reason why it's super important. Another, another reason that it's important um, is just so that you know, you know if, you're, if you're a hunter, I, you want to know um, if, if the meat you're, you're eating, if you're feeding to your family or, or sharing with, with friends does have chronic wasting disease. Um, it's important to know um, Colorado Parks and Wildlife, as well as um, you know, the Department of Public Health, recommends you do not eat meat if you know that it's infected with chronic wasting disease. Although there there is no evidence yet that has jumped the species barrier to humans, um, there has been some experiments where it's jumped to monkeys, for example. And so, um, and that's not to say that at some point it it, it might not or it might be able to. So, um, just just for your peace of mind and, and your health and your family's health, we recommend if you know your your animal does have a chronic wasting disease, we re- recommend you do not eat that animal. So 
uh, it's important for science and it's important for your your personal and family health. So Travis Austin Parr here. Um, quick question for you. So say somebody is harvesting an animal outside of Colorado for say Kansas or Nebraska. Are you wanting them to bring some of those white tails and mule deer to to be tested uh, with Colorado Parks and Wildlife? You know, each state's going to have their own their own um, recommendations or, or how they're handling it. One thing we we did do in Colorado this year um, is that we we reached out to our non-resident hunters who are coming in from other states um, because each state does have their own laws and regulations surrounding uh, chronic wasting disease and transporting animals. Um, we want folks to know, like, if you're coming in from, from like, New York to, to Colorado, you're passing through a lot of states potentially, and so um, you need to know the, the rules for each state you're passing through. So, um, you know, the further you're away you're coming from, especially if you're driving, then uh, that could could be a, a little bit of research that you'll you'll want to do just to make sure you're following all the the regulations um, set forth by those states. Uh, but we're, but at this time, we're not asking um, neighboring states to to bring their animals into Colorado. So if you're a Colorado resident and you're bringing uh, an animal back into Colorado, you do not need to get that tested then. That's correct. You'll okay. want to look at you know if, if you're hunting in Kansas or wherever what they're what they're doing. But we're we're not. Um, I mean you. You you theoretically could uh, you could you could bring it into a, a CWD submission um, check station and, and get it tested. Um, you, you can look that up if you go to our website on cpw.state.co.us. It's just backslash CWD. We've got a lot of resources on there, including uh, all our different check stations. Some of them are are just our regular regional or area offices, and some of them we've got some what we're calling mobile check stations this year that we're putting in more rural areas. It's essentially going to be a, a Parks and Wildlife truck or a trailer uh, with a sign out uh, that says CWD check station, and so um, those will be out at times listed on the website. And so, you know, if you're hunting in an area that's not close to a, a building or even if you're a non-resident who's going to be out on the weekend and, you know, normal office hours aren't going to work for you, those, those mobile check stations are meant to, to help folks get get their sample into us and travis that was my other question is so the there's a letter going out to i'm assuming license holders for these particular areas that you're looking to really scrutinize but if someone is hearing this and saying what do i need to do and how quickly do i need to bring the animal in after i harvest it where can they go to get the specifics uh relating to that definitely so so go to that that uh our website slash cwd um, and you'll see there's there's quite a bit of information. There's some um, you know good links off to the left side of the page that kind of guide you through the site. So you say, okay, I, I want to know the submission location. There's a link off to the left that says CWD testing and submission information. So you can go in and can be like, okay, what do I need? Um, and they tell you in addition to the the head, you need to bring in um, a list of of these items. So you need your hunting license. You need the location of your har- harvest. So GPS coordinates. Um, hunting unit and date you harvested, uh, these kinds of things. So, um, and they've got a whole a whole list of the submission location and, and hours that's up to date. Uh, they tell you what to expect as far as timing. Um, so we we're recommending folks bring their heads in as soon as possible within five days is recommended. Um, it's it's probably going to take uh, up to three we- three weeks or 15 business days from the date your head is submitted to get the results back. So we're going to be aware of that. Um, so you're probably going to have that that wait period of, of you know having sure. your animal processed and sure. and wondering you know if it, if it's going to come back positive or not. Uh, if you are having your, um, so we are offering um, some reimbursement processing uh, 
reimbursement for processing costs for folks. So um, if you if you process yourself, you can uh, get $100 back. If you have it com- uh, commercially processed, um, it can be $200 back. And, and for moose, um, if you choose to have it, um, you know, your moose tested, you can get up to $250 back. So all that refund information and kind of just how to document that, um, basically, you know, save your save your receipt, save, save that kind of thing. Um, but that's all on the website. Um, so if you do have a positive animal, uh, you can get some reimbursement for processing. Um, we're, we're not offering um, any replacement licenses or anything like that, and that's in line with what other states are doing just to keep the cost down and be able to afford to basically keep managing the CWD and um, just keep our costs down. So. Sure. So can you give us a sense of, let's say, the mule deer herd? What sort of percentage of animals you're seeing with chronic wasting disease in the herd itself? So it, we get that question a lot, and it's it, it's really... That's why you need this testing, really, right? Really, <laughs> I would it's exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's why we need this testing. And if you, know, if you want to dig in you know, to the, the game management unit level... You can definitely go to the website and um, and check out. Um, we do have you know the prevalence rate that we know and the confidence levels for for the different units. I'm kind of scrolling through right now and, and trying to find it, but it is on on the site I mentioned. Um, I think it's in about CWD and adaptive management. It is so it's on that link on the website. Uh, you go in. There's a little bit down that page. There's a where is this disease found? One of the links says CWD in mule deer prevalence estimates, and so. You can you can scroll through and look and just see how kind of widely ranging the percentages that we know and where the confidence levels are. So, you know, the, the confidence intervals are, are you know, they're a statistic term, but they're important because if if it's not a high confidence level, if you don't have high confidence, we don't have a lot of, a lot of samples data. from one unit, yeah. you know, yeah, a lot of data, then it's tough to know what the infection rate is. We may have only received a few samples. And and if all of them came back positive, it might look like that unit has a very high, you know, rate of chronic wasting disease. But that just might be that's the only samples we have from that area. So um, that's that's a big reason why this this effort is so important, so that we can say with more confidence how big the problem is, and and then take steps to to manage it. Travis, if somebody has some other questions that they don't necessarily want to call in and ask you about, how do they get a hold of you if they have specific questions about what's going on with chronic wasting disease? You know, if folks want to want to contact me, I'm a public information officer, and um, if I don't know the answer, you know, my job is to to find the folks who do. So, sure. uh, folks are always welcome to to contact me through through email, um, just Travis Duncan at State Co. Us, or you can call me on my cell phone at seven two zero five nine five eight two nine four. I'm always happy to talk to folks and and direct them in the right the right place. Hey, thanks for your time today, Travis. We really appreciate you updating us on what's going on with with trying to get some analysis and good data so that we have a sense of what our herds are doing and and trying to protect us uh, from one of these naturally occurring phenomenons, but just awful. And I really appreciate your efforts, Travis, and thank you very much. Definitely. Thanks for having me on today. You bet. All right. You're listening to Sportsman of Colorado. Let's take another break. And when we come back, let's talk a little bit about some of the other issues that are are upon us, the the salmon spawn up in the mountains, what's going on with with other trout that are also spawning. Absolutely. There's great opportunities up there. Yeah. And then maybe a little maybe a little waterfall to end up Perfect. the show. All right. You're listening to Sportsman Colorado. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Scott Watley. Now, many times you hear your radio host like me say something like, let me tell you about my friends at, then we'll talk about a sponsor that we truly believe in and endorse. Well, in this case, 
Let me tell you about a company that really is part of my family, Lone Tree Veterinary Medical Center. For over 13 years, we have trusted our furry family members to this wonderful staff. At Lone Tree Veterinary Medical Center, they believe that all pets deserve to have a good life. And their goal is to help you keep your pets happy and healthy throughout their life by providing complete pet care services every day, all at one location. We love the Lone Tree Veterinary Medical Center boarding lodge, and your pet will too. Your pet will receive one-on-one -on -one care and attention throughout their stay. Open seven days a week for your convenience. Check them out. Lone Tree Veterinary Medical Center, located at 8681 Lincoln Avenue in Lone Tree. 303-708-8050. 303-708-8050. Or check them out online at LoneTreeVet.com. After an accident, think about Flesh and Beck Law. After your accident, you didn't think it was a big deal. You didn't think you were injured. You didn't think you'd ever hurt that much. You didn't think you'd have to miss work. You didn't think physical therapy would take so long. You didn't think there'd be so many hospital bills. You didn't think that the insurance company would take so long and give so little. You definitely didn't think you'd ever be in this situation, but you are. After an accident, think Flesh and Beck Law. Flesh and Beck have the experience and the knowledge to think about all the details you didn't know you'd have to worry about. They will answer all of your questions and help you to determine if you are entitled to compensation for your pain and suffering. After an accident, think Flesh and Beck Law. 303-806-8886. 303-806-8886. Call today to find out if they can help you. Rush to Reason with John Rush, weekdays from 3 to 7 on KLZ 560. Welcome back to Sportsman of Colorado. My name is Kevin Flesh. I'm here with Austin Parr. Uh, finishing out the show, let's, let's talk a little bit about stuff that's going up in the mountains and sort of what the fish are doing this time of year. Absolutely. So as much as I'm focusing on the front-range walleye fishing, I always get so many reports on a discount fishing tackle about the stuff up in the mountains, and yeah. I need to, need to get up there and, and hit it myself a little bit more. But places like uh, you know the, the Gunnison River up above Blue Mesa, particularly with people talking about the salmon run, yeah. that is at an absolute peak at the moment. So all those salmon come up out of Blue Mesa and they move up to the Roaring Judy fish hatchery where the CPW will artificially inseminate the eggs and yep. then stock them back across the entire state. Um, but that particular body of water up there, you can't snag the fish, but you can catch them on things like ice jigs under slip bobbers or drifting egg flies and San Juan worms and get truly big kokanees. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's there's nice kokanees, and that population really has, has rebounded over the last few years. Um, but the brown trout also will come up with those fish, and they're up there with those, those fish uh, right now. And that's kind of one of the first true spawning runs that's happening throughout the season. Now, places like the Dream Stream up above 11 Mile, although it definitely can get pressure, and I certainly recommend it on a weekend, or a weekday, weekday. more than a weekend. Yeah. Um, but there's huge populations of salmon that come up out of there. Uh, 11 Mile is starting to recover from the gill lice problems that they had, and once again, you have big brown trout that come up out of there as well. And then other places like Wolford Mountain Reservoir and the Blue River up above Green Mountain all offer salmon fishing opportunities. And of those places that I've talked about, the only place that you're allowed to snag is up above uh, Green Mountain on the Blue. These other places, they're actually harvesting these salmon to, once again, artificially inseminate these eggs. And it's critical that a lot of these salmon go, go back. Go all the way up. Oh, yep. yeah. So, um, but those are some great opportunities to be had. But... 
If you just want to target trout, South Park has been fantastic in the lakes itself. Up above, Spinney has been good with a few brown trout, but the lake itself has been very productive. And then in the North Park, Lake John and Delaney Buttes this time of year are just fantastic They're places always, to go. Yeah, really good. And I fished the Arkansas last Saturday, and um, there certainly wasn't any spawning activity that I saw going on, but the trout were definitely willing to take on uh, they they weren't they weren't feeding a whole lot on the surface and the the guys that were using regular you know nymph rigs and and sort of dead drifting didn't do that well. I did really well on streamers though. They were chasing streamers all day long. That's fantastic. So, and I mean, some people are still catching fish on dries yeah. right now too. And that's something to really consider is the fact that we haven't had those heavy cold snaps right. up in the hills yet. I mean, I was up sage grouse hunting last week near Kremling, and there were hoppers everywhere still. Yeah. So although we're talking about these fall spawning runs, it's almost <laughs> late summer, I guess you could call it up there still. So we're still a little bit off on some of these spawning runs. Well, and the fun thing about this time of year is you've got so many different ways. In the salmon in particular on the Gunnison, I mean, you can you can try to catch them with the San Juan worms or the eggs. I mean, there's so yep. many different ways to do it, but you can also be stripping streamers because you yes. know that big browns are going to be behind them, that Absolutely. they're going to be looking for, for to, to eat whatever they can find, huge predators. And... Um, and so there's lots of different opportunities to, to fish for these things. Yeah, and whether you have a lighter five weight, you can throw smaller streamers like like woolly buggers yep. or or sculpzillas from from Solitude Fly Company, or you can go up into some of the big articulated patterns, which yeah. a lot of people like. And things like up on the Dream Stream, that can be fantastic on big articulated flies. Right, it's it's a fun time of year. So um, we've talked about the salmon, we've talked about some of the trout. Um, what else is going on up in the mountains right now? Uh, with any other species that may be up there. Pike, are it's a great time to fish for those guys as well as the lake trout. So yeah. the, what people don't realize a lot of times is that the lake trout are spawning in the fall as well. And right as the ice is going to be coming on, granted we're a little ways off from that, mm -hmm. but you have these big lake trout that move up into the mouths of these rivers. And you can catch them at places like Green Mountain, Williams Fork, uh, Blue Mesa. Uh, those those big lakers get in there, and when they're shallow like that, you can be throwing big, huge suspending jerk baits like a Smithwick Rogue or a Rapala Shadow Wrap, or you can be fishing tubes up shallow in those yep. places, and they can can really grow to huge sizes, as we all know. But that's right. a great opportunity to be had up there, and. And the smaller lake trout, this is a great time for numbers of those for places like Granby. So Granby has good kokanee runs that come up into the pump canal when it's running in between mm -hmm. Granby and Shadow Mountain. But then the lake trout will pile up on your structure points out there, your humps like Dyke 3 or some of your Rainbow Bay points. Though you can catch tons of fish on tube jigs or on um, little slab spoons. My favorite is uh, from a company called Real Bait out of Seward, Nebraska. But those guys work great, and you can catch great numbers of, of eaters size kind of lake trout and those big lake trout really i mean talking about conservation those ones are really important right. to put back but eating those 17 18 19 inches is is a great uh, great table fare and great for smoking and all that kind of stuff the other thing that's interesting and we were talking off air before uh the show the fact that i've gone up to saskatchewan a couple of times this year early in the spring just after ice out so that the lakers were shallow and then i was oh, just yeah. back up on reindeer lake because uh, they were spawning up there uh, a week or two ago and uh that's a bite that with a fly rod is spectacular. really spectacular. Yeah. You know, you have a chance of catching a bunch of smaller fish. Oh, yeah. Um, and then you have a chance of catching a 30-pounder. Yeah. And, and that's pretty spectacular opportunities. And those happen right as that lake is really getting cold. cold. So you yep. can hit multiple different opportunities by changing your elevation. You right. You could start off at a place like Jefferson or go up onto the Grand Mesa somewhere up really high and then gradually drop down. Maybe go through Twin and Turquoise and then finish your year off at Granby. And the brown trout at Granby will move up shallow right with those lake trout. And you can catch them on the fly rods or jerkbait 
baits or, or even lipless cranks sometimes yep. and do really well. And remember, we're, we're talking about specific lakes, but if you think about any of the lakes in the high country that may have a stream that flows into them, any, any of the lakes that have brown trout in them at this time of year, those brown trout are going to be going up into those streams to spawn. Oh, yeah. And I mean, anywhere from southwest Colorado all the way up through you know Middle Park and into North Park, there's browns in all of these different lakes. And the browns are all thinking about spawning right now. And then the other you know kind of wild card are the brook trout. And there's places like in the Grand Mesa that have yeah. huge brook trout and then tiger trout. And although tiger trout are not spawning naturally, uh, they'll move up into some of those, those inlets uh, on spawning efforts. So thinking about all that, you don't necessarily have to, to go to any of these really high pressure spots. I personally don't like fishing the dream stream very much, but yeah, finding some of your lower pressure areas that have good brown trout in them, maybe looking at some of the, the CPW fishery surveys to figure out what population of brown trout are in these different lakes. And then looking at the public access opportunities on the rivers above can really prove to be very successful for not only good production on fish, but also not very many people. That's exactly right. And the other thing that uh, I think people have to recognize, we're talking about fishing these fish during the spawn. You don't have to be fishing the fish on the reds. Yeah, And, and maybe let's talk about that yeah. a little bit. Let's talk about what we do to be mindful of what they're doing mm -hmm. and to protect the resource. So unlike kokanee or walleyes or rainbows, many of the brown trout in the state are 100% from natural reproduction. Yep. So it's critical that you're fishing these fish ethically. And anytime you're fishing a spawn, you want to wind up doing that. So sometimes it can be very high pressure. So it starts off with giving people room. So unlike up in the northeast part of the, the, the country where it's okay to fish right next to people, <laughs> in Colorado, that is the fastest way to get somebody irritated at you. Yes. But secondarily, looking on your big gravel beds that the fish are actively up, paired up against, try and keep those fish you leave them alone right fish to the fish in the holes above and below and especially don't be walking across these reds so a lake like 11 mile doesn't get any brown trout stocking that's significant mm -hmm. so it's re relying 100 percent on natural reproduction so giving those fish time and giving those fish space even with a lot of other people is 100 percent critical and as with the brook trout and as with the, those browns Giving those those active spawning fish space is 100% important. And you can you can see them pretty pretty clearly. Absolutely, those reds are typically very shallow, and they're areas of gravel bars that have been. It's easy to see they've been moved by those fish, but the fish in those deeper holes are not usually actively right. spawning. And then especially if you get a big female, you know, keeping that fish in the net, keeping that fish in the water, maybe lifting up for a quick quick shot, but not grabbing that fish or or having her on the bank. To lose all those eggs is is important, and then with the big lake trout, if you stick a big lake trout this time of year up on the shoreline, it's as important with those yep. as well. So keeping them in the water, lifting them up quick, and getting them right back in the water is is the what you want to do. Nothing wrong with a picture. Nothing wrong with uh, getting a good look at them, making sure that they're okay, but don't overly handle them. Make sure that yep. your hands are wet when you are, yep. and get them back into the water. The other thing that I think is is something that I think many people have thought about uh, over the last few decades about the fact that you move the fish back and forth. That actually does not help them at all. Just it getting, can, yeah, getting them positioned yep. upstream. Yep, and yep. just let them figure it out and take some time with the fish. Don't be concerned that if it takes a few minutes for the fish, just take the time with them. You get a little bit more time to look at them. And Absolutely. And I mean, as far as harvesting fish, you right. know, this, the, these, these fish are, are, you know, they're, they're meant to be harvested a lot of times. But sure. this time of year, trying to change your harvest if you want to keep some fish to some of your rainbows or your cut bows is going to be much better than keeping some of those browns, which are actively making babies right now. So, um, you know, all of those different things can all lead to a resource that we can enjoy for 
years and years to come. Hopefully, that's that's the that's the goal because we've all got kids and we all want yeah. them to be doing the things that we're doing. And especially with how fast the city's growing, nobody realizes it more than me to the person who's selling fishing licenses to everyone <laughs> coming into Colorado. So the pressure is growing. Yes. And every it, it's important for everyone to to remember that and and treat the resource uh, with more respect than ever. Well, Austin, it's been an hour. <laughs> it's crazy. The hour always goes so quickly. So why don't you give our listeners a little bit of uh, how they can get a hold of you and where your shop is and, and how you can help them to end the show. Absolutely. So I'm the co-owner of Discount Fishing Tackle, which is six blocks south of Evans on the west side of Santa Fe. The address is 2645 South Santa Fe Drive. And we truly have a fantastic selection of fishing equipment. Anywhere that you're going in the state, I will have your regional selection. So our number is 303-698-2550. And guys that can help you and gals that can help you be a better fisherman in there if you're looking for advice we are your place absolutely hey this has been sportsman of colorado we appreciate your listening today get out and enjoy those out of doors and we'll see you next week thank you expressed on KLZ 560 are those of the speaker, commentators, hosts, their guests, and callers. They are not necessarily the views and opinions of Crawford Broadcasting or KLZ management, employees, associates, or advertisers. KLZ 560 is a Crawford Broadcasting God and Country station.